Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I hope over time, um, things as, you know, we hopefully can settle the spread and let the people who are unwell recover, then they'll be able to relax things and hopefully life will start returning to normal. And I think what's really important is just for people to think, you know, if I'm about to do something and I have to question, is it right or wrong? Is it really worth me doing that if it puts other people at risk? So I think that's really the most important way to think about it. Those are the wise words of cardiology registrar, occasional Humans of Purpose co-host and current wife, Louise Segan. A short bit of housekeeping and we'll get right back to Lou. I wouldn't be in a position to make this podcast each week without the support of our Patreon family, including Levi, Rich, Tanvir, Lucia, Judy, Jules, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. This elite squad helps me shape the direction of the podcast through their advice, ideas, guest referrals, and ongoing feedback. If you want to support the growth of Humans of Purpose, I encourage you to join our Patreon community. By supporting me to make Humans of Purpose, you're supporting independent and local content production in the form of conversations about the things that matter most. To support us, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. So as I mentioned, it's an honor to have Louise here. Lou's first appearance on Humans of Purpose was episode 100. If you want to go back and check out that episode for some deep background, This episode is really a conversation about how the front line in our public hospital system is responding to COVID-19. A big shout out to Gemma Tovey for her elite suggestion to get Louise on the show for this topic. Lou offers some amazing insights as to the change process our major hospitals and frontline health workers are embarking on to combat COVID-19. Despite living with Lou, I found her reflections fascinating, terrifying, but ultimately it helped me to better understand the sacrifice that health workers are making every day for us, and even more so in the midst of a global pandemic. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lou as much as I did. Well, what a privilege to be back here with the occasional co-host and regular wife, uh, Louise Segan, who is also a cardiology registrar. Welcome back, babe. Thank you for having me. Well, you're not here as a co-host today. You're here in your capacity as cardiologist. Yep. I probably should have not made that a question. That was just a, <laughs> more of a statement situation. A statement. Pleasure to have you back. Troubled times. We're going to talk a bit mm-hmm. today about um, coronavirus. We'll talk a bit about how we're responding to it. This is actually a request from uh, one of our re- regular listeners and friends um, to have a bit of a perspective on how the front line of healthcare is going responding to the virus. So... Great to have you here. Any opening remarks? Yes. Um, it's interesting listening online to podcasts. I listen, as as I've probably mentioned before, mostly to medical podcasts and in Shout particular- Shout out to Prof Mandrola. Yes, um, cardiology podcasts. But although the content um, at the moment is all about coronavirus or COVID-19, as it's being called um, in the medical spheres, and I think probably in the media as well, um, everything is just occupied by COVID-19 at the moment. So even- medical or subspecialty podcasts are specifically talking about this and how this issue might affect different specialties throughout medicine and our healthcare system. And it's really changing the way in which we practice medicine. So um, things are evolving day by day. So how bad is it? Yeah, it's a difficult question to answer because I think everyone's having somewhat different experiences in different 
health services and also different um, capacities as healthcare providers. So in my hospital, I think things have really ramped up over the last few weeks. There's certainly been a lot of discussion. Um, we get a, a pretty much daily update from our CEO um, about what's going on and the numbers that they're testing. Um, we had the first confirmed healthcare worker um, diagnosis last week, so that was quite confronting. And just ways in which we might need to change our practice um, even in the coming weeks. So one example, and a lot of people probably have heard about this, but looking at ways in which um, healthcare workers might have to uh, step up into different roles to try and meet the needs or the growing needs of our, uh, and pressures on the health system. So I think um, we're going to be stretched a little bit outside our comfort zone. Um, it takes a huge emotional toll on everybody because you go to work with a lot of uncertainty and worry about whether or not you might risk exposure or being exposed and then potentially bringing that home to family and not being quite sure about how the um, the information that we re- receive is going to change uh, day by day. And a lot of people ask us and look to us as medical providers for advice about the disease, but they have to realise that this is something largely unfamiliar to us as well. So I think that we are really trying to caution the advice and the information that we share based on the most robust evidence available. That's a big answer with lots of jumping off points. Um, (laughs) Maybe you just want to start with how you're feeling as a healthcare uh, worker on the front lines, um, added to the normal pressures of your job, working with um, vulnerable, sick people. How do you feel or how has it impacted your day-to-day? Do you think about COVID much? Sort of, I'm sure you do as part of the policy response, but just in the course of things, do you feel as though there's this added pressure cooker element that is COVID? Mm, I think it's changed for me over the last couple, week or so. I think at the beginning it was business as usual and I think that I probably fell into the trap of being in the bubble of day-to-day work and although lots of people around me were working, starting to work from home, I'd go to work each day and still do my job as usual and so I think I compartmentalized it. And then in the last few days or so, having worked, I worked over last weekend as well. And the, the pressure is ramping up and discussions and seeing people walking around the hospital with masks and personal protective equipment um, is making it much more real. So I think that um, I won't say that I'm worried. I'm, um, I'm I guess feeling cautious about how the future will look. But you've had to make other decisions like about um, because you're more at risk mm. as, a, as a frontline worker, you've had to distance yourself with some vulnerable members of society, especially yep. the elderly family members that you have. You've got a couple mm-hmm. of grandmas who are well pushing the 90s and you've yep. also got a sister-in-law who's uh, a diabetic, so somewhat compromised immune system. Yeah. So there are sort of challenges that you face that maybe others don't face also. I think that's true. I think the my stance is that I don't want to put other people at risk. So I would the advice I tell people is that I won't put I won't make the choice to put them at risk so if they choose to for example see me if it's within the rules that the government has put out then I'm okay with that but I don't want to put people in a position where they feel uncomfortable so you know as you mentioned one of my grandmothers is 91 and she's going through her second course of chemotherapy and she's amazing and I want her to stay amazing so I've made the choice to stay away shout out to Mish Yep, no, she's she's definitely going to listen to this. She is the most robust ninety-one-year-old I think I've ever met, um, and then yeah, other family members who might be vulnerable. I know that certainly um, 
even family members who are well are making the choice, some of them, to stay away. And I understand that and I'm not at all offended. I think that it's a very personal decision. Yeah, there's an interesting dynamic that's going on now about people sort of acknowledging or not acknowledging sort of through their actions or language who they're social distancing from in particular. So you see that like, you know, a lot of our friends have um, shut up shop in a way and said, you know, just within the four walls and Mm. sort of quite wise to do so. But with that, you know, everyone's on the footpath and out walking their dogs and then you see people you know and they sort of walk to the other it's side of the road. Tricky. <laughs> I, I don't think people are trying to offend other people. They're just you trying to. paranoid? Is that what you're saying? I think they're just, people are just afraid of number one, getting in trouble and number two, doing being perceived to be doing the wrong thing. Yeah. So they're just trying to do the right thing. And one point I wanted to make is I think what um, one challenging part of our work in a practical sense is social distancing in the workplace, particularly in the hospital. It is really challenging. I was going to say, how do you, how can you do that? You're a, you um, work in sort of multidisciplinary teams. It's a lot really of the time. changed the way that we think about things, like going into the patient room. We're now talking about like, do we just have one patient go in the patient room? Uh, how do we communicate to patients? What should we be wearing if we're con- coming to contact with patients? For example, examining patients. And you know, some patients' rooms are quite um, narrow, so you can't really fit all of the team members. Historically, we would all go in and all be part of the management discussion and or have relatives there. You know, over the weekend I had a um, difficult uh, situation where a family, a patient was um, requiring end-of-life discussions and, you know, I was planning, preparing the family of how we would orchestrate that with only being allowed one visitor, so that's really challenging. Obviously um, we make concessions for extenuating circumstances, but all these things we've never had to confront before, we're really having to be creative in how we can still try and optimize patient care and you know continue to provide reassurance and the best care possible but within the limitations of you know the health advice it's an interesting one i was thinking the other day about how you must how your mentality must be very different as a sort of frontline medical care worker that your employer is asking you essentially to go and put yourself in a position of risk every day to do your job and i wonder whether you've seen cases or heard cases of people just saying look I love doing medicine, but no, nah, I'm just going to not do that anymore. I must admit I haven't seen that yet. I think the hardest thing, and I can, I'll can, i speak as a doctor for the moment because I don't want to speak on behalf of all healthcare workers, but I think doctors are very bad at, um, number one, uh, calling in sick, admitting when they feel unwell, and um, just accepting that they're unfit for work. I yep. think that all those factors are historically very well described. And I think this has really forced us to change the way we think about that because by turning up to work sick, we could infect patients, infect colleagues, and actually uh, contribute to the transmission of the virus potentially. So uh, some clinicians who've been unwell and staying at home don't necessarily meet testing criteria or haven't before the rules changed, but they're still required to stay home. And that guilt still is within us because we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to feel that we shouldn't put undue stress on the rest of the team. And we feel that we, uh, if we don't come to work, then it's just going to create a whole lot of extra responsibilities for others. So I think that it is um, in some silver lining concept, it's kind of um, forcing us to reassess well, it's good. It, it's our, a, our own personal health. This is like a useful pressure against the bias to maybe come to work when you're not well. 
Mm. It's sort of a, a roadblock to that or a force, an oppositional force the other way. And I actually do see that permeating a bit into the regular office workforce as well, where generally it's sort of like, you know, mm, don't really take sick leave. Now it's more like if you're any semblance of sick, take sick leave. Yeah. Well, I mean, now <laughs> they've implemented this change where we have to check our temperature twice a day mm. when we go to work. And, um, I must admit that's been a bit tricky because I've never had a thermometer or felt the need to have a thermometer. So I have to go into work and get my temperature checked when I start work and then get it checked again when I finish work. And if you your temperature's above, I think, 37.5, you have to report into the fever clinic and go home essentially. So they are getting strict on the criteria just to make sure that any semblance of uh, becoming – sick is recognized early well, i think that's critical because i think the worst case scenario would be italy where you had that the hospital situation where the healthcare workers were getting sick mm. from the patients and then it, like because the system was so under pressure all the healthcare workers just had to get corona mm-hmm. and that was sort of expected to be part of the situation well someone asked me today whether or not all healthcare workers are going to get tested now i think that might change but at the moment the answer is no um they're not screening everybody because don't forget that if you test someone now and they're negative, that doesn't uh, give you lifelong um, uh, reassurance. Yeah. yeah, And so, you know, you might not be sick now or you might not be exposed now, but that doesn't mean in a few weeks or months or however long things go on for that you couldn't then be exposed and develop the condition. Mm-hmm. So there's no, not really in my mind a clear reason to test everybody now. And I think that also applies to the public. So people who want to be tested for the sake of it, I think it's so critical for people to understand that this test does not give you reassurance beyond the window in which you are unwell. So if you're unwell and then you test positive, then you know why. If you're unwell and you test negative, you can be reassured that your illness is not because of this virus. Mm, mm. Well said. So is there a risk with corona that is it exacerbating people's existing conditions? Does it matter what type of condition they have? Or Mm. is it the case that just say they're in the hospital with uh, ventricular fibrillation? Uh, It's one of the few cardiology (laughs) conditions. They'll be unlikely to be tested because they (laughs) probably won't survive that one. Okay, Okay. let's pick something that's less (laughs) arrhythmia. Okay. Cardiac arrhythmia, and yeah. then they also show symptoms of COVID. Would the COVID on top of that be sort of like doubly, is it, make it far more likely to be fatal or significant? I honestly think we don't understand this interaction well enough yet. So what we do know, and this is someone, I'm not an infectious diseases specialist, so that's my disclosure, but we know that people with chronic health conditions are at greater risk of having a more uh, possibly extreme version or severe version of the illness. So that's often, I mean, not an exhaustive list, but people with diabetes, chronic kidney disease, heart failure, those are some of the common things. Mm. Um, and obviously immunosuppressed, like, for example, active malignancy or on chemotherapy. Mm. Um, so those are people who are in the higher risk category and elderly people just by virtue of their advanced age. Um, in terms of people with a condition that's not necessarily um, – doesn't necessarily portend a more um, fragile immune system, like, for example, cardiac conditions. And when I mean by cardiac conditions, it might be, say, atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular heartbeat. I'm not sure that we know how COVID affects this population because I'm not sure we've seen enough cases yet. Yeah, yeah. this is like a different thing where there's no papers on this kind of stuff because yeah, it just happened. they're looking for those papers, but yeah. we haven't seen the yeah. – I don't think we've seen the cases yet, or if we have, we haven't – diagnosed it and do you look at like um situations where a comparable 
strain of like swine flu and how that's affected conditions as like a proxy or that's not I don't think we've ever seen anything quite Mm. on this scale to Mm. be honest um and I think the other thing which we're starting to understand cardiology specifically is that this coronavirus strain in particular seems that it can um influence uh, or accelerate uh, impending cardiovascular conditions so things like for example acute heart attack um, by you know the systemic inflammatory process, mm. or um, an inflammate a condition where the heart gets inflamed called myocarditis. So we're seeing a few of those sort of cases where someone ha- is confirmed having the virus and then develop this consequence. And um, the treatment is largely supportive anyway, but we worry that in those patients they can develop the other things like breathing failure or breathing difficulties and things like that. So obviously the way we manage those patients is is evolving, but we are. Um, the the first step is recognizing it the the interaction in the first place and probably studying it a bit more closely. So what happens like if a patient comes in or you've got them in ED or whatever and somehow you don't screen everyone but just say you do the test and they've got COVID and then there's been a whole team that's been treating that person. Mm. Does everyone have COVID? Or yeah, like- it's a good question. Um, I think at this point the official line is that uh, patients are screened firstly in ED. So yep. they come through triage, they're screened as either low, intermediate or high risk. If they're low risk, as I understand it, they generally, it depends what their symptoms are. So say they've come in with a completely unrelated symptom like I don't know, abdominal pain, then they'll be triaged to the regular area of the emergency department. And again, this is probably more specific to the hospital where I work. Other hospitals may have slightly different practices. In our hospital, if someone comes in with any respiratory symptoms, even if they're classified as low risk, and what I mean by that is no known um, COVID contact and no recent overseas travel, then they would not necessarily undergo screening with a COVID swab, but they'll still be placed within a respiratory section of emergency where you have to put personal protective equipment on in order to review the patients. So they're taking certain precautions in that sense. And then in terms of their ongoing management, unless they've been swabbed and tested, then you wouldn't necessarily it wouldn't necessarily have implications for the rest of the team. But as the clinical management goes on, you would see are they developing signs where we're worrying actually we should test them. So for example, patients that develop a severe pneumonia, you might then think back and say actually we should test those people. So I think that will change more over time as we understand the different ways in which COVID manifests in the body. And so that we've talked a bit about the hospital system effects, and I think that sounds like hospitals have got more of a handle on it now, and so the, the risk has been reduced of a widespread infection happening. Uh, what about primary health and sort mm. of GP clinics and, you know, in your position, do you think it's risky at the moment to um, to go to a, a GP clinic, like a patch waiting room? Well, I just want to go back to the point that you mentioned at the beginning just mm. quickly and just say I think we've been very lucky in an unfortunate turn of events that we've been able to learn from the examples of our overseas colleagues of of things to do and maybe not to do in order to reduce the transmission. And we've got ahead of things a little bit, ahead of the curve, so to speak. Um, So I think we've had an advantage in that way. Um, In terms of primary health, I think what I'm really pleased to see is the massive expansion of our telehealth services and you know i'm very passionate about telehealth. telehealth i do i've been sparking on about it for the last two and a half years and i'm really glad that um others are having opportunity to see how we can reach so many more patients this way and i really think this may change the way in which we do uh interact with patients in the future and the way that we also better communicate with primary care providers. So if we have them involved in the discussion, they can have an integrated discussion between a specialist and a 
Which has really been, you know, something that, that the system had planned for through MBS items for a long time, but just yes, sort of it just hasn't wasn't happened. taken up yeah. because, um, you know, I think people perceive that it's very hard to do. We were very lucky where I worked um, previously; they had a whole telehealth department, so we were really well supported. We had the existing platform. And it didn't cost the hospital any money. Well, to my knowledge, it didn't cost Probably any money. Probably made money from the MBS so rebates. It did because what people don't realise with telehealth, if you meet the criteria, which is somebody outside of a certain um, radius demographic yep. area, then the GP gets a 50% uh, additional fee on top of their regular consulting fee mm-hmm. for that consultation and the hospital also gets a 50% additional payment on top of the Sorry, regular payments. So in that sense, it's um, really positive from a financial incentive perspective. For the patient, I think it's really good because if they can't be in front of the specialist because it's difficult to access them um, or, you know, the, they're not clo- they're not in close proximity. Just, just pop your phone next to you because it interferes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's all right. In close proximity, um, then they can still get the advice. The GP can provide a prescription. The GP can inquire and understand the decisions or the recommendations that are coming forward so i think it's very good collaborative patient care and now it can be extended to people out you know even within metropolitan Mm. areas which i think means that we're providing equitable access for patients i was going to ask you i mean has this sort of unfortunate covid situation perhaps some of the silver lining is it's a window into the future of healthcare. Uh, it's helping to push our system towards being more virtual and remote and supporting um, communities in more of a kind of practical way using technology better i think that's very true and i think it's it it expand or extends beyond even just the patient interactions even with our meetings we've moved all our meetings to zoom platform um even our department meetings. And so this means that we have far greater reach. We could have other specialists, however it might be relevant. Um, I think Zoom is doing well financially out of COVID. Oh, they must be doing so well. But I will say I had issues, technical issues today with my camera and microphone. So I then had to use my laptop to zoom in so I could see the other people, but then use my phone to use the microphone. So that was really cumbersome. Yeah. So hopefully, the, you know, shout out to Zoom if they can fix that it's problem not, that, for that, me. That doesn't sound like a high-quality Zoom experience. I don't think it was great. Um, yeah. But, look, I do see the positive. I really am really enjoying House Party. I don't know if other people are using this app. That's where it's people invite social. their friends over and hang out? Or? No, no. Uh, that's the that's definitely not the approach. The It's an app that allows people to have, um, I guess, like a social experience but over um, an online um, process. So it's like, I guess, having Skype with multiple friends or family. So last Friday night my family had our Friday night dinner but via this app where we could all see each other and watch each other eat our own food. And your brother really enjoyed that because it only lasted 15 minutes. Yeah, it was very short interaction, <laughs> but my niece really found it quite overwhelming in a positive way, seeing so many people on the screen. So I think that was really nice. And it is nice that we can still yeah. have a way to all interact, but that's safe and that's promoting the message that, that we're trying to send, which is not to um, you know get each other unwell, so staying away as much as possible. Good call. So let me ask you about your own um care because you know you're probably thinking about what are the things that i can do to make sure i'm in my best health possible to ensure Mm. i don't i'm I'm less at risk for covid and maybe how you model your answer will help us think about what others might do to you know you know you're a healthcare worker you're higher risk but others should follow similar advice to maybe maintain their own health yeah 
Look, I think it goes back to first principles. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen as many people wash their hands as what I'm seeing now. I've never seen so many stores that are run out of hand sanitizer. This is all really positive things that really we should have always been doing. Um, It's just great to see that we finally got the incentive because people are worried about health. I just hope that we can sustain that over time because it really is a principle that will reduce transmission of other diseases as well. Um, and those are the things that I'm um, very mindful of trying to, um, you know, emulate. Um, and then the other things is just being mindful of my own well-being. So I'm trying to get as much sleep as I can on the days when I'm not on call, making sure that, um, you know, keeping hydrated and eating as as normal, um, trying to exercise, which is obviously a bit more challenging now that the gym is closed, but mm. I'm very grateful that you bought me a treadmill. You're welcome. And you got ahead of the pack, so that's very I had good. to get ahead of the curve, the financial treadmill buying slightly curve. Slightly different curve. Yep. Um, but no, I think whatever way people can balance their well-being and try and just keep um, as calm as possible is really the important message in addition to, you know, general physical measures. Do you think, I mean, I've got a bit of a concern around social isolation of people, mm. particularly with the government guidelines around, you know, you, you can see one person, but they should probably be the person who lives with you. Um, that doesn't give people a lot of opportunity if they don't have a big family to, or they're elderly or whatever stage of life, to have that vital feeling of connectedness. Mm. Do you think that, um, you know, we're just going to see ramped up Zoom being the answer to that? I don't think everyone's going to take up Zoom. Um, I, we're already seeing some people just find it really challenging um, and the older population will find that challenging. They just did not grow up in an era where we had this sort of technology and that's okay. I, I think that really the government's trying to send the message that because unfortunately not everybody is exhibiting um, or not following the recommendations as much as they would like they're having to be much more punitive and I think if people really stepped up and just collab collectively all were doing exactly what we need to be doing to reduce the transmission then it probably wouldn't need to be so specific I think if you leave things open to interpretation then people will just kind of stretch and look for loopholes so I think that they've done it in a very deliberate way I hope over time um, things as, you know, we hopefully can settle the spread and let the people who are unwell recover, then they'll be able to relax things and hopefully life will start returning to normal. And I think what's really important is just for people to think, you know, if I'm about to do something and I have to question, is it right or wrong? Is it really worth me doing that if it puts other people at risk? Mm. So I think that's really the most important way to think about it. Well said. So the other thing I think we're going to see is a huge influx of new apps that claim to solve every problem that's a tyranny of distance and human connection problem. What do you say about some of these apps that are popping up? Like I think Beyond Blue's release one, the government's got its app. Yep. Um, um, I think these are a lot, a lot of these apps will be temporary. <laughs> I think they serve a particular purpose. Um, even like House Party, for example, I'm not sure that there will necessarily be a long-term need for it, but I think that it will provide some reassurance for people now that they can have things, number one, to keep them occupied. It gives people something to do, um, take up different hobbies. I think it's really excellent to see all these apps popping up of free like online workouts just to encourage people to stay fit and healthy. So I think that it's a good solution for now, and then who knows what will come of those things down the track. There might still be an evolving way in which that can be helpful for people down the track as we're seeing that technology is advancing all the time. So looking down the track, let's just imagine that it's six months later and COVID has um, been defeated. 
and <laughs> is no longer with us. Um, what do you think we'll take, if anything, from this period as changes to our lives that are maybe positive and try and integrate going forward mm. post-COVID? And you could you could yeah. answer that also from like both a hospital medical healthcare working mm-hmm. perspective and also just the human perspective too. Yep. From the uh, the hospital medical perspective answer I think is easier because I think it'll just make us a bit more mindful about resilience and how we can provide care in different ways. Um, you know, for example, now that we've got electronic medical records um, and this is happening overseas too, a lot of uh, in some cases, especially in suspected COVID cases, we might be consulting on patients we haven't actually seen. And that's by reviewing their records, medications, observations, all these things we can now look at off a screen without being right in front of the patient. And so that's a way in which we reduce our risk. I'm not saying that we will do that forever, but I think that this offers opportunities both inside hospital and in the ambulatory setting to provide advice and care without necessarily being able to access the patient directly. In terms of where this puts us as humans in life, um, that's a very philosophical discussion. Do you think like we'll all just wash our hands a lot more after this generally or will other things be different? I like to remain hopeful. I do think that there's always a natural regression um, as things become more distant in our minds and so I suspect for a period of time people remain vigilant and then probably as lives get busier and people get caught up in other day-to-day things it'll probably be less at the forefront of people's minds but I think that you could never really fully erase the experience that we we are going through and so I think people who've lived through it will have some it will have some long lasting impact are we all survivors now can we say that we're survivors Mm -hmm. well we haven't survived yet but here's hoping (laughs) um look I think most important is just everyone just stay safe um stay calm listen to the advice Uh, Spend time with the family that you can and um, look at this as an opportunity for us to like band together as a a country, as a world. Everyone's going through this around the world and take solace in the fact that, you know, if we kind of all work together, we have seen and we can see that we can make things better. So I think that's the main message. That's a good message. message. Before we wrap up, let me ask you um, in terms of the overall public health response, government, society, Are there any things that you would like to see being done that aren't being done or sort of would advise or recommend or, you know, if you were PM or, you know, head of the chief chief medical officer, is there stuff that you'd want to see implemented? I think uh, any answer I give might get me in hot water, but I do think a few things that are making us uh, need to plan a bit more carefully is the s- scarcity of personal protective equipment. That's a really big problem. You know, um, just to give you a slight insight, in the hospital we've had to take extraordinary measures to protect our equipment. For example, um, people were uh, removing hand sanitizer bottles, um, boxes of tissues, masks, uh, boxes of gloves. So we've had to remove everything so that we can keep maintain it for staff because that's what it is intended for. And so it's a really unusual time having seen all of that which is not what we're used to usually you don't have any problem accessing these resources so even the other day i had to get into the medication room to get a gown which is unusual so i think that um if we weren't if it's like the toilet paper phenomenon if we weren't feeling if people weren't feeling so threatened they wouldn't feel the need to panic and hoard Mm, things and mm. i think if we did if we felt a bit more 
uh, reassured that there's contingency planning around that, that would be helpful. I think the medical workforce shortage is a concern still. Um, Doctors will get sick. It's inevitable. Nurses will get sick, other health professionals. And I'm not sure how we've planned, whether we've planned adequately enough for that. Um, But hopefully, you know, we'll try and be out, do our best to remain as well as possible and resilient as possible. But I think that's difficult. Um, And things around, you know, annual leave and um, things are all a bit up in the air for healthcare workers. So I think that those things haven't been um, quite dealt with. I think it's going to have a a flow-on effect for people who are in training programs. I'm included in that Um, in terms of how people enter programs and finish their programs because of all the delays with exams and other things. So I think those things are obviously not the priority right now, but it will become something that needs to be tackled down the track. Louise, thank you so much for visiting today. You're more than welcome to hang around as you also live here. Uh, it's been great to catch up with you and to have a, uh, a real perspective from the front lines uh, in, the, in the collective effort to face the COVID. So um, once again, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 